Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. This is Inspired, a series where an artist invites someone who's influenced their creative lives to share the stories behind their connection. I'm Riwa Saab. I'm a Barbican Young Poet alum and interdisciplinary artist specializing in theater directing, poetry, and singing songwriting. I'm a final year student of performance and creative enterprise at Guildhall School of Music and Drama. In this episode, I'm speaking to Kirsty Housley, a director, writer, and dramaturg. She won the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Trust Award in 2003 for Q Deadly, a live film project, and her work has twice been nominated for the Stage Award for Innovation, winning in 2017 for The Encounter. Kirsty is currently developing new work with the National Theatre, Complicité, Clean Break, and Hampstead Theatre. I invited Kirsty because I was eager to have a conversation about her thoughts and processes behind the inspiring theatre work she creates. Hello, welcome to our listeners. I'm super excited. I'm Rua Saab. I'm here to speak with Kirsty Housley, who is a director, writer, dramaturg, and is one of the most prominent creatives in the theatre world today. Her shows have been on at the National Theatre, the Barbican, the West End, and many other venues. Kirsty, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And it's lovely to meet you. So nice to meet you. So I wanted to speak to you because I was drawn to your work because I know you work a lot with devised and new writing theatre. And my introduction into the theatre world started with devised work because that's one of the primary ways of storytelling through theatre in Lebanon, where I grew up. So I moved to London in 2018. I visited a couple of years before that as well. And suddenly there's a whole array of theatre and styles that I get to engage with. And I started gravitating to the um, devised work, the new writing work. And um, one of the first shows that I saw was A Pacifist Guide to the War on Cancer that you worked on and it went on at the National Theatre um, with Bryony e. Kimmings and Complicite and I was super inspired by it and just with that as an intro I wanted to ask what was maybe one of your earliest influences in theatre what brought you into the theatre world? Oh god so I, I can remember really clearly actually I had a sort of I suppose quite a, a common story which is that um, I had a really inspirational drama teacher. Um, so my so my first access point to theatre was participation. I hadn't really been to the theatre. I mean, I'd been to see like a, a musical and a panto at the at the local theatre in Southampton, 
it definitely wasn't a regular part of my life. I definitely haven't been to London to see any shows or anything like that. So my kind of access point was having a drama teacher that encouraged us all to make our own work. So I saw the work that he was making before I before I sort of became part of that youth theatre, before I was doing a drama GCSE or anything like that. So I'd watched this youth theatre that he'd created make work and thought it was really extraordinary and really wanted to be part of it. Um, and was never really interested in acting, but didn't know enough about um, what any of the other roles were. We would just all make work collaboratively. Maybe we'd have a theme or maybe we'd choose a theme and then we would make a show together. Um, so that was my first access point was participation. And then after that, the same teacher took us to see um, a piece of theatre by a Welsh site-specific theatre company called Brithgoff who I, I don't think exist anymore, but I'd be really absolutely overjoyed to find out that I'm wrong because we saw a piece that they'd made called DOA and it was in a huge building that they'd built this kind of structure in the middle of and you could go into the structure with the performers. It was just this... Uh, uh, I mean, it was very different to the musical and the panto that I had seen prior to that. Um, it was extremely physical visceral I I just remember fit, like not realizing that you could feel that much watching a piece of theater I just knew I loved it so I just kept doing it for as long as I could did it for a level went to university and studied it and just sort of kept trying to put one foot in front of the other and see as much as possible but I mean you know I didn't go to the national theater until I was in my 20s uh, and I moved to London so I I think but I think in a way that those two kind of points of inspiration were really useful because they I guess they were what you would describe as non-traditional British theatre. Um, whereas maybe if I'd grown up being taken to sort of these big institutions to see well-made plays, I wouldn't make the work that I make now. Right. That's super interesting. I think, yeah, that story of, of I think it's always the drama teacher. It's the people yeah. that guide us into the world's of you know the art forms or practices that we do that bring us into it and that sounds very similar to me of just you know having a drama teacher that was like oh try this check out what this theater group is doing check out what they're doing I guess my next question would be how would you describe your style then do you think it's still really housed in that form of quote-unquote non-traditional theater making I uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's non-traditional just because I think that what's what's traditional in this country is sort of is actually really quite narrow. So I think loads of theatre falls outside what people think of as traditional, and and I think uh, the thing that I always feel like I really want to say is that I don't think audiences care. Like I, th I think it's a, I think that's a theatre people's distinction is you know what what's traditional or what's not, and I think that. I think that if you if you tell an audience a good story, they don't really care what form it comes in, you know, whether it's whether whether you've devised it or whether someone wrote it or whether it's linear or nonlinear or whether the form is sort of what people would perceive as experimental. I think people are a lot more uh, open. Audiences are a lot more open than perhaps theatres think. I don't think I've got a style, you know. Because I think that the thing that I've always really tried to do is really listen to what the artists I'm collaborating with are trying to say and trying to communicate, but also to sort of try and understand the form always comes out of the content. The danger is when if you have a style, 
that's very consistent I'm always really amazed by that like I, I think it's I think it's brilliant and, and in a way I love the fact that there are certain artists that I know what I'm going to get when I go and see their shows I know exactly what that artist's show is going to feel like or I know that there are certain ingredients that I'm going to get but I just I, I can't function like that I don't think because I think that Every subject or theme that you look at, every artist that you work with needs a different way of that story being told. So the dramaturgy has to be different. The aesthetic has to be different. The form has to be different. The stru- everything has to be different. You sort of never really end up making the same show twice. And sometimes they can look really different and feel really different. So I suppose the only thing that they've all got in common is that I try to make them each, oh, this sounds incredibly pretentious, but like as authentically that thing as it can possibly be. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And it totally comes across. Um, I was just looking back, just reigniting my memory about the work that um, I've watched that you've done and just really thinking about how each of them really brings us into the world of those characters, of those people, really envelopes us into it and how they've been dealing with that particular time in this character's life in this particular environment and so yeah that totally makes sense it really like they all seem to be very poignant and specific to those places I noticed also that you work quite a bit with multidisciplinary artists with theater makers that incorporate a lot of different elements that are often talking about parts of their own life and I'm very curious to know what it's like to work as a director and dramaturg with people that are talking about themselves essentially in theatre it's so funny isn't it I'm so used to doing that now that I almost I find it really strange when that's not the case like when, you know when you have an actor and they're playing another character I'm like when do I get to see you though <laughs> when do we when like when are you going to talk about yourself on the stage I, I mean I think that's I think that even in non-autobiographical work I'm always interested in the performer on stage as much as I'm interested in the character they're playing I think it's something to do with wanting to acknowledge the the artifice of what you're doing without undermining it like I think there's something really magic about theatre in that way no one really does this with with film or with television but in the theatre you can completely you can completely um, deconstruct everything that you're doing and and point out all of the fiction and, and accept totally accept all of the fiction you know I'm not I'm not really this person but it doesn't break the magic of it I suppose it's a bit like in the beginning of the encounter where we say, you know, this is this is a technological trick. All of the tricks that we use get unpacked and we explain them all and we explain how they function and we explain the trick that your brain is playing as well when it starts to believe certain things. So we sort of start by saying none of this is real. And then an hour later, that doesn't stop you believing in it. That's kind of magic to me. Oh, do you know what? Chris Good says a really brilliant thing, and I can't remember what the animal is. I think it's a cat. It's like, if your piece of theatre would be broken, let's just say an animal, because I can't remember what the right animal is. If a random animal walks onto the stage during your show, which it's not supposed to do, if your show can't accommodate that moment, if your show can't look at that moment and go, oh, look what's just happened, then it's breakable, then your your theatre's breakable. And I absolutely loved that. I think lots of people make very fragile theatre. I mean, we've all seen it happen, like the actor drops a really important prop or, or a cue gets missed. Something doesn't function and everyone talks about live theatre. Oh, it's so amazing that it's live. It's so amazing that it's live. But most theatre can't actually let the liveness in without it damaging the theatre so I think it's something about that to me I like the baseline reality just being what it is that we're all sitting in the theatre together and that that's an actor and that you're the audience 
and that this set's not real. But there's something about that acknowledgement that we're all together in this moment in time. So I think weirdly, I always bring autobiography in, even if the show is not necessarily autobiographical, just because you're accepting the reality of that moment that we're all who we are. There are shows that are really obviously autobiographical. And then I say there are other shows that are less obviously autobiographical. But maybe if I think about the work that I make with Javad, I've never, he never plays anyone else in those shows. He's always Javad and he's always talking about the things that he is interested in. So to, to a degree, there's like a, you know, there's a real person on stage not playing a character, talking about research that they've done, worlds that they've entered. So I think there's also, there's sort of degrees of autobiography in a way, aren't there? And then there's very personal autobiography, which is maybe about a specific thing that's happened to you that you want to tell the story of. And then I'd say that's sort of in a category of its own. Yeah, just on that note, so in terms of the work with Javad, do you mean that it's autobiographical on various levels because he is himself on stage or is it through the type of story that he's telling yeah he will always I mean I think I mean we've made two shows together so it's not like a huge body of work or anything but I think both shows pretty much start with him saying hi I'm Javad um and then telling you about something that he's been interested in I also think for me sometimes it's about who's who's written the words it was for example like it was a really interesting thing that we had to that we had to discover on the last show because it had another performer in it. So actually to to work with Payvand so that she owned the words that 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 were hers on the page but had been written by someone else was quite was really interesting actually. There was there was such a difference in tone between someone saying the thoughts that they've had and then someone having to sort of you know working with Payvand on that work was much more like working with an actor to sort of to to get to that point of um of owning that language and it sounding completely like it's your own whereas working with Javad is different we tend to be making and rehearsing at the same time and then of course because it is his passion uh you know he's talking about things that he's really fascinated by and it's research that he's done so in a way all of that process has happened during the during the making but it's not personal and it's not necessarily about a personal experience that he's had it's more often than not let's look over here at this thing that I've become really fascinated by here's what I've been trying to figure out let's all look at it not here's what happened to me I'm going to tell you about it which feel like two different forms of autobiography one's inward looking and one's outward looking which feel very different in the way that those things need to be made and approached I have so many thoughts about that but yeah I think let's take them one at a time I think I want to go back to um looking at specifically shows like Misty or I'm a Phoenix bitch I think they're super interesting because I myself am I've been very excited by directing dramaturgy but I also have the practice of creating theater that is also semi-biographical that does incorporate different elements um, one of the most recent things that I'm currently trying to develop is um, a semi-biographical piece about um, the experience of conflict in Lebanon in 2006 and exploring memory. And the thing about that was I've spoken to different people within my generation and looking at retrospect. But with all of that, I have now this material and I haven't figured out how to approach the form of it. And I think one of the lies or myths that I've told myself is that I have to, if it's going to be theater, it has to be a facade. I have to tell, I have to bring them to 2006 or I have to bring them into today without 
acknowledging that we are making theater in a sense. And um, I think what's interesting about Misty and I'm a Phoenix bitch as well, they're talking about um, the worlds that they're in. Arenze is talking about this experience that he's been interrogating as a story itself and as a theater maker. And Bryony kind of does that as well. And I'm interested in the dramaturgy of that. How do these decisions come about? How does this structure arise? That's such a good question. As I remember it, Arinzo is writing about not necessarily one specific experience that he'd had, but I remember really clearly, actually, him describing looking at a blank page as a as a writer and not having the luxury to just start typing or writing that that there were certain expectations and he described them as filling up the page of like of like big blotches of ink landing on the page of like this is the expectation that the artistic director of a building will have about the kind of work that I will write as a black male artist okay so that's like now taken up a quarter of the page so suddenly I, I feel really limited by that here's the expectation that that might come to me from something that people are calling my community but I don't even really know what that means so there's that's now taken up half of the page so and he said by the time by the time I've got through all of this stuff of sort of trying to second guess what people want and all of these different expectations it's crippling there's no space on the page for me to just be the artist that I want to so rather than rather than it feeling like it had come from a specific experience it came from I guess a lived experience of sort of uh, over a long amount of time of being an artist and there's definitely there's a lot of fiction in Misty you know the the sister is a fictional character the girlfriend is a fictional character and you know the the play isn't really a play that's that's being written you know so there's there's lots and lots and lots of fiction used to I think to unpack what that means and what those expectations are and I remember us trying to figure out the different modes in Misty actually and that's quite a big thing for me when I'm working so we realized that there was we called it just straight Misty uh was the was the play that was being written about the young man on who gets into a fight on the night bus so that story from beginning to end was just called Misty and it had its particular way of being told had its particular form which felt like spoken word, which had the projections, which had the music, a particular lighting state. Um, and then you had Misty Squared, which was a Rinze stage version of a Rinze trying to second guess, figure out, grapple with whether telling this story of Misty is the right thing to do. So I guess that's like a meta layer. And what I was always really... Uh, interested in was how how we were going to get this third layer which is actually exactly what we've just been talking about is like the is the reality is is the is like when do we get to see non-fictional Arinze when 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 does he talk to us because actually your complicity as the audience in that expectation of what you've come to see uh is really important as well so and I would say that that's sort of the final moments of that show. I mean, finding form is such a a, a, sort of a tricky thing 
British theatre always focuses on story. What's the story? What's the narrative? This happened and then this happened and then this happened. What's the cause and effect? Where's the building tension? Now, obviously, like that's really important, but I don't think that helps you understand the meaning of your show. So for me, like the deep dive work that I always try and do at the beginning and always do actually do it at the beginning of every process is just thematically brainstorm what the what the piece is so just write down all of the themes on a really big piece of paper because I think when you're looking at themes you the meaning of those it somehow becomes easier to then think about form so for example if you sort of if you did this for the encounter you would find listening and communication and consciousness. If you wrote down the story, you might also discover some of those things, but the story would probably be misleading because it's it it can sort of have that superficially is it's a kind of white man goes on an adventure story. Um, and that was 100% not the show that we that any of us wanted to make. Whereas by looking at it thematically, you get into its guts a bit more. And you go, hang on, so much of this is about listening. So much of this is about communication. So much of this is about language and different language and different ways of communicating, listening, consciousness, different ways of understanding how someone else perceives the world. That that as soon as as soon as the binaural sound came in, I mean, firstly, you know, to start playing with that stuff because you're like, okay, so sound is really important. How do I, how do I get to hear what Simon's hearing? How do I get to understand where he is? So I think that all of those, all of those thematic brainstorms always give you clues as to what the form could be. Um, same with, um, same with shopping malls in Tehran. Um, the last show with Javad is you start talking about. If we just describe the story of that show, like the narrative within that show is about two rich kids who crash a Porsche. It's not going to give you any clues about how to tell that story or what the wider meaning of that story might be or what you're trying to get at by telling that story. So whereas if you start thinking about, we'd done a lot of research, so we kind of knew what we were interested in. Um, but we didn't know how it all fitted together. So you st- we started talking about this, about Instagram as a story, about grids, about scrolling, um, scrolling down. Actually, you know, that came later. We started talking about geology um, and time. And then you sort of start finding out really interesting things like that the geologists describe the rock um below our feet as like the earth's hard drive that contains every single story suddenly there was this weird sort of instagram geology um parallel also in the way that you scroll down in instagram and you dig down into the rock to go back in time i mean formally it then becomes quite easy because rather than looking at the story of the two characters you sort of go well how did the world actually receive that story how did the world start to understand this particular group of very privileged young people is Instagram. Um, And then for me, I think, 
I think you'd be a fool to talk about Instagram rather than get people to go on it. So then that becomes your form. You know, that that then I think was a sort of a third of the show happened on Instagram. So you just you're sort of you're always looking for the form, but you find it thematically, I think, rather than just focusing on the narrative. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and once again, brings a bunch like a network, a web of things that I want to ask again. But um, ask away. I think we'll start off just going back a little bit back to um, the layers of meaning. Um, and I mean, you, you were just talking about it, how um, how they arise, how they start to show themselves. And um, I'm especially interested in the line between dramaturg and director especially when a lot of the creating happens in the room, in the physical space, rather than as a script first, which some people might traditionally think of dramaturgy. Um, so yeah, how, how would you describe directing and dramaturgy? A lot of people will, if I'll tell them, oh, I'm interested in dramaturgy, they'll be like, what is that? Um, and that's a very common question. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I have that question too. And it's really interesting because it means something completely different to everyone you talk to and I think there's a there's a more European model of dramaturgy where it's really interesting I I was really lucky to go to Hungary um a few years ago on an arts council um bursary uh I was really interested in um a Hungarian novelist and wanted to adapt one of his um novels which I eventually did for complicity but uh yeah, so I went out to do loads of research and see lots of shows. And, and I met a really brilliant dramaturg in Hungary. And she was saying, you know, oh, yeah, I work with the designer, I work with the director. So in uh, in most of Europe, you've, you're, you're looking at the concept and the meaning. Whereas in the UK, quite often dramaturg is interchangeable with literary manager or literary assistant or somebody who who digs down into the script and works with a writer on that. But I discovered a couple of years ago when I was doing Avalanche at the Barbican, there were two of us. So myself and Penny were dramaturgs and she was sort of, we actually just gave, I think just informally in the room gave ourselves different titles. So she was the script dramaturg and I was the production dramaturg. So she was much more looking at script changes with the writer and I was much more, why does that why does that design element kick in at that point because I think that's telling us the wrong story or like you know I, I was much more sort of looking um and working with Annie Lou who was the director on um on the on the production as a whole I guess so I think that's the first thing is when people ask what what does that mean in a way you can just tell them what you do because, okay. because no one really knows what a dramaturg does um uh, and there are just different approaches, you know, in, in the same way that you wouldn't expect any two directors to work in the same way or expect their process to be the same. For me, of course, story is like a, a massive, massive part of it, but it's also meaning I'm sort of trying to listen. If I'm not also the director or the writer, trying to listen to what those two artists want, what the story that they're trying to tell, and then because you're not quite as immersed in it as they are. And often that's just a practical thing in that your job in the room does not also involve 
the the output of working with the with the company so you can sit back and you've got all of that extra brain space to be able to sort of look at those things and say yeah why does that happen at that point what's the what's the intention what do we want people to feel like what's the what is the underlying meaning that we're trying to express so would you say that that's that's very interesting and I just I'm thinking would you say that the dramaturgy then is looking at the thing as a whole and then directing is more about taking those different elements to those places for this meaning as a whole I mean I mean in fairness I feel like I know less about that directing without drama I feel like I'm always doing both at the same time so when I'm directing there's there's often quite a large element of dramaturgy happening as well um now for me there's a massive overlap you know because I think when I'm directing and I don't have a dramaturg I'm autumn I'm I'm still trying to look at all those different kind of strata, all those different layers. Sometimes I need to fight the other stuff out of my brain so I can just focus on an actor a moment and get that clear um, without also thinking, oh, great, because this this is going to kick in at that point. And, you know, because you're sort of you're always thinking about the whole picture. So to to dial that other stuff in your head down so you can just focus on an actor um is quite a rare experience for me um one that I really love but but rarely get to do but yeah I mean I think most directors are dramaturgs as well um whether they would know it or think about themselves that way or not I think I think they are because you're always doing that work with your design team because it's so much of it for me is about concept so you're always trying looking for that concept that's going to really elevate the piece that you're making Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to ask a little bit about um, 
the intersections of digital work with theater. Um, I think a lot of people can, you know, hold theater precious as, oh, it's live, it has to stay live. But I think what's been interesting, um, which I've noticed in The Encounter, whether it's, I haven't, I haven't gone into see Rich Kids, A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran, but I did a bit of research on it. And so I saw that there was the Instagram live elements. I saw that there was all of that digital work. Um, and I didn't actually watch The Encounter in person. I watched it when it was live streamed during the first lockdown. And I think that was one of the closest things that brought me to, you know, um, close to live theater in a moment when we were isolated from it because it was that immersion. Um, and I was inspired by that to work with a group of people. We're now called Side Dish um, Theater. And we were thinking, how can we bring the live experience to the audience? Um, so we commissioned a bunch of writers to write one minute pieces um, in different languages and ask the audience to do something to uh, carry out a domestic task while they're listening to it. So um, someone will listen to this writer's experience going to Tesco and Elephant and Castle while they're asked to clean their house. And basically, what's the intersection of live and digital work, especially in a time where we seem to be moving more towards it? And what does that look like for the future of theatre? Yeah, I really want to answer that question, but I also really want you to tell anyone who's listening where they can find those plays because they sound brilliant sure sure so um currently people can find them at side dish theater on instagram that's where all of the audio work will be housed great brilliant uh, uh yeah i mean i think everyone's learning aren't they like everyone's learning this kind of new way of doing things but i feel like two things have made me feel really lucky and made me feel like i find it maybe a bit easier um I think the first thing is that thing that we talked about at the beginning of always acknowledging the reality of the situation. So when I think about making work digitally, I don't have to create a fictional frame for that. Like, oh, this play is set in a Zoom meeting or, you know, I, I don't have to create like a layer of artifice because actually, hi, I'm Javad. Hi, I'm Pavan. Works equally well on a screen as it does in a room um, because it, it it's just... In fact, the changes that we made to Rich Kids were really quite minimal, actually. Um, we had to rewrite some stuff just practically in terms of the instructions we were giving the audience, um, in terms of how they accessed the Instagram Live stuff. So we had to rewrite some of that. We did actually change the beginning of the show, but we um, we also we rewrote a new introduction. And I think that's... Uh, that's really similar to the encounter actually I think it's about how you meet your audience and being clear about the asks that you're making of them so it's whether whether you do this literally or not it doesn't have to be literally hello but it's a way of saying hello to them meeting them where they really are telling them what the rules of the game are and what the parameters are and um and then starting to tell your story really what I find is that in meeting people in that way and acknowledging the reality of something, you can then ask them to be really imaginative, maybe more imaginative than, I'm going to ask you to believe this is real, because that's the rules of theatre. So rather than rather than just sort of unthinkingly asking people to engage in a fiction, because that's the form that you're using and you haven't really, um, you know, that that's the form that you think that theatre is. 
theatre that that's active in the way that it asks you to engage your imagination for me anyway works better in this digital form the sad truth of the matter is that we don't have Netflix budgets and so for me putting a play on a screen I mean it can be extraordinary like in terms of access like if you if you can't get to the theatre to see that show if you can't afford the train to London or if you know then I think those things are amazing and so I think putting that stuff online is is a is a brilliant brilliant thing but there's so much content online that you do sort of put yourself into the arena where you're you're sort of competing with those other forms of fiction that are out there you know with in in film and, and television you you show so much more whereas i think in in theater we're used to uh different ways of making things clear i think or different ways of sort of asking people to imagine um so I think that that's made life a little bit easier for me, actually, is that so much of the work just seems to transfer quite naturally. And a lot of it uses tech. So that also makes it easier because the thing that makes you feel so immersed in the encounter is of, obviously the storytelling, but it's also Gareth Fry and Pete Malkin's absolutely extraordinary sound design. Um, so wherever your headphones are plugged in, whether they're plugged in in the Barbican or in your living room, you don't get the same experience, but it's very close. Um, and then, you know, and with Rich Kids, putting it online was, I mean, most of the content existed already. So in terms of the visuals and also the Instagram content, it was just, um, it was an edit job rather than a making job, if that makes sense, just to transfer it across. Um, but I think everyone is trying to figure out what works. I think it's exciting seeing people kind of step outside their comfort zone as artists and try something different is always really, really interesting. Um, and I think I'm more excited by that and some of that stuff maybe not working than I am about let's let's film this play. I think that's what it does for me is it's like a gateway drug. You know, so you might watch a show online that you wouldn't have got to see and then be like I really like this I really like theatre I think it's going to make you want to go to the theatre if it's good rather than make you want to watch more stuff online yeah we start finding these hybrid forms of live performance performance that happens I guess in real time which also feels very important I mean we all know that theatre is just about gathering and connection and um I think even then still there's something nice about knowing that me sitting in my living room, there are other people watching at the same time as me, reacting at the same time as me. Um, and especially um, theatre being about fostering empathy. I feel like that's one of the um, main reasons I'm drawn to new writing and devised work. These are real people that are telling me about their lives that in, in a way that's vulnerable and true and... Um, yeah, really fostering that empathy in an increasingly polarized society. I think that's an important thing. Definitely. And and that's where I think it's really it's really interesting the the thing of, of transferring to a more digital way of working because uh, empathy doesn't work in the same way when you're watching a screen, just like physically in your brain. The chemical process that kicks off in your brain with your mirror neurons when you're watching someone and you're in the same space as them, 
is a completely different process. It's just not as powerful. We talk about it in the accounting, physical proximity has a really strong relationship with empathy. So we are losing something by not sitting in a space together. And that amazing study they did like that the year before last about people's heart rates syncing up. Did you know about this? It's incredible. When you get an audience, to, I can't remember how many people it was, but it was a large number of people. I think it was a couple of hundred. Uh, and they put them all in the same place, watching the same thing, and their heart rates completely synced up. So their hearts were all beating uh, at the same time, which is... That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. And I, d- I don't know. It'd be really interesting to know whether that happens when everyone's watching the same thing on a screen. Yeah, I wonder, because we're all in different environments, different different rooms, different places, different devices. I think it's the size as well. I just think about how whatever production it is, whether it's the most magnificent thing I've ever seen or something that I'm, eh, that was all right. Whatever it is, there's always that beautiful moment afterwards. It doesn't matter what the story was. The fact that there's that roar of applause, there's the, that's the tech crew, that's the sound team. There's people behind the scenes. It's all happening here in real time with you. I think that's one of the magic of it. Maybe that's why we're just, you know, in sync with the applause, in sync with the heart rate, in sync with the breath. Yeah, completely. And you all know that sort of when you're sitting in an audience trying to sort of, you know, it's always split focus when you open a show, isn't it? Like half your focus is sort of on the, well, maybe most of your focus is on the stage. But I also think that that thing that starts to happen when you preview a show is your also really trying to tune in to the people around you who are going to tell you what what's working and what's not and you can you can sense that by sitting by sitting in that space with people so that's the other thing I find slightly strange about digital work and why I was really relieved actually with rich kids that that because so much of it was on Instagram people could comment um all that so there so it felt like there was a dialogue running under the performance um from the audience um so it didn't feel like this thing was just being thrown out into space without knowing what what people's reactions were um so I think that's also what people are looking for is that is that kind of how do you how do you try to recreate that that sense of a communal experience which feels super important with there's I mean the, the the thing about our polarized society is that we're going more towards far wings in terms of people's views and connections of each other I mean I feel like the point of theater is we sit there we acknowledge each other's humanity we get to react at the same time um and it's quite scary the um intake of social media the way that it's all controlled I was watching the social dilemma last week and it feels like it feels like live work just even the theater that we see by sitting on the underground by peering onto whoever's sitting across from us that all feels like that counters this world that's been um, curated for us online and digitally and they mentioned quite a bit about how the algorithms on Instagram Facebook so forth are one of the reasons that um people start becoming drawn to more far-right views or practices. Um, I saw that one of your recent work is Mephisto, which is about um, a far-right takeover in this town. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more. This is, I guess, one of the more philosophical questions or political questions, but how this all intersects and the interaction between all of these experiences. 
Oh, Mephisto was really interesting, actually, because I actually agreed to do it before I'd read the script, um, because it hadn't been fully translated into English, but it it just really met me where I was. So I'd read a break, a scene breakdown, and I'd watched the French production online. Um, my French not being good enough to actually be able to sort of follow the detail of of what's being said in terms of you know the detail of the script, but um, but the, the thing that really sticks out in my head is it, because it's about a theatre company, so it it's about yes, it's about the rise of the far right, but it's mainly about a group, a, a theatre company, uh, in uh, I guess what people controversially would call the regions, um, it originally set in France, where um, they they're all trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. Um, and the cent- the central character absolutely has a gaping hole at the centre of him where he just, he, he needs to fill that with um, volition. So he needs to be successful. And so, what I mean, one of the things I found really interesting was, so it's based on a novel written by Klaus Mann and Klaus Mann's brother-in-law so it's based on his brother-in-law, though his brother-in-law sued. So the book was banned in Germany for years. So his brother-in-law was an actor and he stayed in Berlin and under Nazi control and took over the running of the theatre. He performed Faust for the Nazis. Wow. So it completely extraordinary I think he did play Mephistopheles so he literally plays the devil quite superficially there's a story of sort of what you would what you would do for success and whether you would whether you would sell out all your principles if it got you what you wanted but also really the sort of the thing that the thing that really jumped out at me is I, I really remember reading the breakdown of this. I can remember really clearly sitting on the train and just laughing out loud as all of these um, actors and artistic director have an argument about what the fucking point of doing Chekhov is when like, like what is the point of even making theatre when your country's sort of on this kind of absolute sort of fairground ride racing towards extremism. And I just it did something really weird to my insides because I was laughing, but I was also laughing at myself because, you know, it's it's just like the conversation that I have internally all the time. As you go, oh, I make theatre, that, that feels really important to me. Like in my heart, it feels like, it feels like a give in some way. Like it, it feels like you're feeding, not, not extra, you're not extracting something. It feels like uh, and we so have this about art in this country, which I think is not necessarily helpful, that there's something like really wholesome about it or, you know, that you'll be a better person if you go and look at a painting or something rather than like just go and look at the painting because it's fucking good. But um, so I think it, it also really it made me feel so uncomfortable. And, and it was so interesting because there were protests kicking off left, right and centre when we were in rehearsals and you're kind of you're kind of going is so it was a very live conversation as well like are we doing the right thing where where are we most useful like as citizens of this country are we most useful sitting in a room trying to make a show that's going to be on at a brilliant but very small theater so like how many hundreds of people are going to see that or are we more useful like getting out our placards and going and being of a number 
it made me feel squeamish about what I do. I don't think you often see theatre that that is sort of pulling the rug from under itself in that way. I think what what you see a lot, particularly with theatre that that's digging into something political, is um, is a very strong viewpoint and a position of knowledge. Um, so knowledge, not questioning, and a sort of division between the knowledge that's held on stage and the knowledge that the audience is perceived to have. And so Mephisto for me was like something really political that was that was sort of opening up the guts of what we all do. I should say as well, that sounds really, really indulgent, but it's really funny. I felt like the, the question that it was asking, obviously it resonated with me because that's what I do, but I feel like the I feel like that question of am I am I giving my time and energy to the right thing at this moment in time that feels quite catastrophic sometimes? Or we can catastrophize it quite easily. But you know, when we're thinking about climate change, when we're thinking about pandemic, when we're thinking about a seemingly unstoppable rise of the far right, which I feel like every time I you know, I mean, I remember when we were making believers sort of looking at some of the really far right US conspiracy stuff and thinking, this is insane. And then sort of checking in with it again now and going, it's actually it's got so much worse you know there was something that sort of felt quite universal about that questioning of like am I doing the right thing at the right time or and the thing that is even more uncomfortable am I just doing this for me because it makes me feel good because I get some kind of validation from it and that's really you know there's there's a very clear line between two of the characters so um one of the characters who is super political, who really genuinely doesn't care about success or that their own name being sort of known anywhere. And I think everyone in the company was like, we definitely want to be that character, but I think we're actually the other one. It's a, it's a, it's a tough line to draw and it's a tough line to just like have to interrogate with oneself. It's a brilliant, brilliant play actually, I think. And it, um, and it was also, I should say, translated really brilliantly by Chris Campbell, who made it extremely funny, um, which made all of our lives easier, I think, because it's it is just so much easier to ask those questions if if you're not um, if you can do it with humour. I think that's really important to me is that people feel also feel really entertained by it. Definitely, I feel like yeah, it's definitely a thing to just have that lightness when we're having a look at the really deeper darker stuff um which yeah definitely feels important um I think it's also definitely it's a question that we're all asking I think myself along with other early career artists um are questioning that as well going into the industry but I think also being in the middle of this pandemic also having to convince others that what we're doing is important that theater is important um beyond just economic terms you know that this is something that needs to be preserved. Yeah, and that sort of loops back to the beginning of our conversation, really, because for me, that's also a thing that's really about what's happening outside our industry, what's happening in schools, is it's really hard to convince a nation full of people that you're valid on an incredibly deep level in terms of people's lives. You know, when you're 
you're not part of people's education. So I think what's happened in the UK with cutting arts out of schools, uh, labelling them as soft subjects and then removing them, is that's that's catastrophic to me. We can all argue our worth in the in the sort of in theatre industry terms, in terms of our audience. But at some point, you know, there'll be a whole generation of sort of people like you or I who haven't had that drama teacher, who haven't had that that sort of event or couple of events that were like a door opening. I think that theatres can be alienating buildings, but I think if you've grown up participating, that becomes easier. You, you do feel a certain level of ownership over it as an art form. So I think we're going to really struggle in a few years time when all of these sort of children who then become adults who have had no access to not just theatre but other arts in in their education it makes me incredibly angry me too me too definitely because the theatre really becomes like a second home a lot of people find some of our you know closest friends most life-changing stories in the theatre so whoever is listening I hope this feels like a call to action. Yeah. We have to keep preserving this, making it go on. Um, before we round off, I just want to ask, what should we be keeping our eye out for in 2021 or after what's coming next? That's such a good question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I feel like my diary is like a mess of like pencil scribbles and rubbing outs and plan A's and plan B's. Um, so at some point in 2021, fingers crossed, the Long Goodbye live show, which is a piece that I'm making with Riz Ahmed, will also happen, which will also be part of um, MIF at some point um, in time. And yeah, honestly, I have I, I sort of don't know yet. Um, I've been collaborating with uh, a few people. So there's lots of work that's almost ready to emerge or in development. And none of us know when that's going to happen. So, <laughs> well, I guess we'll just keep our eyes peeled. Thank you so much for this chat. Thank you for, you know, it's been a climate of uncertainty, but you've given us some brilliant words to hold on to. So, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really lovely to talk to you. That was my conversation with director Kirsty Housley for this episode of Inspired on the Barbican podcast Nothing Concrete. Next week, fellow Barbican Young Poets alum, writer and spoken word artist Amani Saeed speaks to the British-Iraqi writer and drag queen Amrul Qadi, also known as Glamru, as they discuss gender, drag and faith. I love to tell stories, but, but mine hasn't really ever been told properly. Stay tuned for more inspiring conversations by subscribing to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.